0: Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Shirts and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Shirts and Andrew Mitchell.
1: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And it's been a fun week in technology as always. Uh, uh, This week we're going to talk about how to get a free copy of Office 365 if you're a student or an educator. It's Really a good deal, and um, it's available uh, and very easy to uh, download. We are going to get to the music of proteins. they have using some uh, artificial intelligence techniques to translate the configuration of proteins as they're ordered and as they're folded to produce some beautiful music. Uh, we're also going to get to a trivia of the week. The oldest verified computer program that is still in use. And as you might guess, it's run by the U.S. government. <laughs> oh, so we're saving money then. We're saving. Well, <laughs> That's good. That makes perhaps. me feel better as a taxpayer, yeah. But maybe not saving money in terms of support fees. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> this week we're going to feature Charles Hoskinson. Charles Hoskinson is the founder of Cardano, which is a cryptocurrency blockchain platform and co-founder of Ethereum. We're going to talk about Charles and what he's done with Cardano and why he believes that Cardano is the third generation blockchain and, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Arnie's been with us a long time. He started out in, in Maryland, then he moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado, but he still listens to us on the podcast. Hi, Dr. Schertz. I've been listening to your podcast on Federal News Radio. In today's podcast, I thought I heard you say something about Stratford Tech Talk and your written summary. Now I went to your Stratford Tech Talk webpage and I can't find a written summary. You know, Reese for the last three weeks. What's going on? Uh, but still, I love your show. It's very, very informative. BZ, as they say in the Navy. What you ever is, heard that? No, BZ? no, not at all. What is that? I had to look that up. I'm going to explain is, is what is. It's something BZ we can say is. on the radio. We can. Say, it's something we can say on the radio, right? It, definitely, we can say it on the radio. Okay. okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Well, Arnie, we are now up to date. Thanks for your uh, little reminder. I, I actually write the XML file right after the show's over. That's the that's the uh, that's the that's the file that all the podcasts read. Um, and then I prepared the transcripts. Uh, I sent them over to my IT team. Turned out my IT team had a little bat- backlog. They didn't get to the uh, didn't get to the posting the shows for two or three weeks. Now the good news is that, of course, uh, Federal News Radio posts the show right away. As you know, you can go there. You just won't get the uh, transcript. Or you can go to Podcast One, and you can get a, get all the shows, the history of the shows there. But there won't be any detailed transcript. I'm going to try to get our IT department to get these things posted on time. Now, I've not heard the, the acronym BEZ for a while. In short, it stands for Bravo Zulu. Zulu. Bravo Zulu. It's a combination of the, uh, of the nautical flags, Bravo and Zulu. Which are just letters, the letters B and Z. Just the letters B and Z. Now, it's a naval signal typically conveyed by the flag hoist or voice radio that means well done in regard to actions, operations, or performance. So when you said BZ, as they say in the Navy, Arnie was saying well done. Thank you, Arnie. Do appreciate that. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Andrew, in my ongoing quest to dig up ideas to pass along to Doc, consider this possibility for inclusion. I found a deceptively simple way, a clever trick that hackers have been using to steal a cryptocurrency. Uh, They use their network to mine cryptocurrency. Of course, they make lots of money in other ways, too. What do you think, Doc? Well, um there's always been a threat with these uh, botnet networks you know they of course they go on to your they basically hack into your computer they install themselves on the computer and they sit there and wait for a command so the botnets could send out um send out traffic to a particular website if they want to do the distributed denial of service attack or they could they could activate them to do crypto mining as a huge distributed computer and that's apparently what these guys are doing here now this—it's been long known. It's been this long-running botnet known as MyKings is still in business and is ranked and has raked in at least twenty-four million dollars using compromised computers to mine cryptocurrencies. They made twenty-four million dollars, um, Andrew. That's quite a quite a haul. Uh, MyKings is also known as Sammonru. Samarinru so and, and Hexmem.
0: Okay, that's got to be some game out there. Yeah, that just seems it's got to like be one of those some alternate game. alternate worlds kinds of names.
1: This is the largest botnet dedicated to mining cryptocurrencies uh, and taking a free ride off of it, off of its victims uh, by using their CPU time free of charge. Now, is that is that illegal? Is, yeah, is there is. actually
0: a law out there somewhere? Yeah. It's,
1: yeah, because you actually have hacked into somebody's computer and installed uh, a program on their computer, and you're stealing their computer resources. That is absolutely illegal. But of course, these guys are in another country, and um, and nothing's ever going to happen to them. Now um, it's a lucrative business. Now it gained attention in 2017 after after they they this particular botnet really became well known after 2017 when they infected more than a half a million windows computers and they were mining 2.3 million dollars worth of crypto a month wow it's always wary to be uh, to to be wary of any kind of excessive activity on your computer because yeah,
0: i would think it's overheating your computer yeah I mean, I mean because
1: you because your your cpu is is going at maximum capacity running all the time so uh, you're going to use a lot of power, and you're also going to be communicating back and forth over the network. So you can always look for unusually high activity on your computer to double check for this. Uh, you know, I mean, you can run a virus scan. You can run malware bytes. It w- malware bytes, It will um, it will detect it. But this is a way that 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 these crypto guys are making money, and it's and it and it's less likely that they will be <clears throat> arrested. Because if I mean, if they do, if they do, you know, if they do something like uh, ransomware, that I mean, they make such a big deal out of it, and, and people try to track that, they they can track the transfer of the crypto. Since these guys are actually mining their their own crypto, there's no transfer to actually detect. So it is a much from a from a criminal's perspective, it's much safer, <laughs> and. Um, And I I think we're going to see more and more of it. We got an email from Julie in Madrid. Dear Doc and Andrew, I recently discovered your show online and now listen every week. I live in Spain. Wait
0: wait a minute. She lives in Spain?
1: Lives in Spain.
0: We're casting a wide net here. I thought it was Madrid, Iowa. I didn't realize that we had listeners in Spain. Wow.
1: This is impressive. Madrid. Yeah, this is I live in Spain. Okay. Wow. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Sure. Yeah. Well, this is the beauty of the internet. Yes, this is actually a global, sh- a global show. It is. We we span the world, you... and it sounds just as good there as it does
0: anywhere else. Because she's not listening on shortwave; that's a thing of the past now. That's right. She's actually right. on her phone or her computer. Listening it's a streaming.
1: To it. It's a streaming link, and it's just as good in Spain as it is here. Yeah. Now, uh, now she has a daily video conversation with friends in the U.S. on WhatsApp. Now, some days the connection is good. Other days the connection freezes. They even lose the connection. Um, now, th- this happens even when uh, um, she takes her iPhone downstairs and sits right by the Wi-Fi router. Uh, she's got video conversations with friends on WhatsApp uh, in, in locally, and it never happens. It only happens when she talks to her friend in the U.S., now, he uses WhatsApp and Zoom and streams videos, and only has problems when he talks to her. Can you help us figure this one out? What's up with WhatsApp? <laughs> Julie in Madrid. Well, you're, uh, there, are a couple, there are many things that you can do to look at this, look at the problem. Um, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to diagnose it remotely. Sometimes a, a Bluetooth, if, if your battery saver is on in the, in your iPhone, and the battery saver turns on. Sometimes that affects your um, your WhatsApp connection because it it actually <laughs> removes power from the phone, and the WhatsApp is not going to function as well. So make certain that you turn off battery saver, or you could you could plug in your phone. Sometimes if there's a Bluetooth connection that's active, that might interfere because the Bluetooth connection might connect to your uh, to your microphone or your speaker, and and then your uh, your iPhone has trouble with interrupts, and so it might be a problem. So you could turn off your Bluetooth connection. Um, those would be two things that you could do. Now, what I always do when I have a problem, I just do a hard reboot on the iPhone. That 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 always. You know, that clears up a lot of things.
0: What what does that mean, hard reboot?
1: Uh, As opposed to turning it off, because if you turn it off and turn it back on, it remembers what was in memory when you turned it off. A hard reboot starts over from scratch. So on the, say the iPhone 11, you hit the up volume, down volume, and then the the power button, and hold it until you see the Apple come up, and you're actually rebooting the phone in a hard reboot.
0: But you're not losing your apps or anything like that. You're
1: not losing your apps, but you are starting out, fresh with no apps installed. If if you just turn it off and turn it on, the apps that were uh, that were loaded when you turned it off are still there. So you're not clearing everything out. So I whenever I got a problem with my iPhone, I do a hard reboot. That that that's always the first thing. Now, also some third-party apps can interfere with WhatsApp, like a VPN for instance. If you've got a VPN on your iPhone, it it could it could interfere with things. So turn off any third-party apps that that might uh, Interfere with making voice or video calls. Also, sometimes you've got security apps running. Antivirus could interfere with your permission settings, and you might try deactivating these to see if that makes a difference. Now, the, you can also sort of reset other things. You could go through. You could try to. You could try to reset your uh, your cellular connection if you're. If you're if you're connecting over cellular, so you simply go to the iPhone settings and then turn the airplane mode on and off, and that will reset your uh, your cellular connection. You might want to reset your Wi-Fi connection. You open up settings, go to Wi-Fi, and turn Wi-Fi off and then on. Uh, you you could also uh, check your data usage uh, settings. You go to settings, cellular, and then on data usage, You want to turn on cellular data. In, in, you know, in case uh, your Wi-Fi signal goes out, then you can continue your, uh, your WhatsApp call on uh, using cellular data. Now, sometimes you've got a, you've got a problem with your Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi router. Is, there's, there's a cache in it. Uh, you could reboot your Wi-Fi router. Now, the other thing you could do, sometimes when you're calling other countries, I mean, it, it, if the network becomes congested, try to avoid congestion times. So it could be that, that that when she calls the U.S., it just happens to be a peak congestion time for the network. But when she calls her friends in uh, – because there's a time difference between uh, Spain and the U.S. But when she calls her friends locally, she's not on peak congestion time. So you want to avoid peak congestion times uh, on the network. Uh, so uh, now the, the, the last thing you can do, which is probably the least um, pleasant, you could just turn off the video part of the call because that takes a lot of bandwidth and you could just – Continue with voice. So a lot of times if people are are making, like at work, if somebody's making a Zoom call and they're just breaking up, we have them turn off their video, then their voice comes through without any problem at all. Now, if this problem still persists, I'd reinstall the app. I mean, you want to go back to the basics. And if you reinstall the app, you're also guaranteed to get the latest version of the app. Now, before doing that, however, back up your chats because if you don't back up the chats to the iCloud when you reinstall your app you lose all your chat history so back up your chats and then you could delete the app and then reinstall the app so those, those are all – I've given you a whole list of things you could try. Hopefully one of those will work. Yeah,
0: that, that's a week's worth of activity right That's right. right. There. <laughs> okay.
1: We got an email from Linda in Palm Beach. Dear Tech Talk, I recently heard about a new Facebook feature called Face Recognition, and I'm not happy about it because it might violate my policy. Can I turn that feature off? Love the podcast, Linda in Palm Beach, Florida. Facebook's new face recognition feature works like this. Uh, Whenever a user, another user uploads a new photo or video to his or her Facebook account, it will compare that picture to your profile picture or any other photos that you then in which you're tagged in to see if that new photo contains you. Now, if it turns out that new photo contains you, they'll notify you, and then you know somebody's posted a photo that you're in. But she she was concerned about privacy. privacy. But
0: this is actually a privacy enhancer, at least yeah. on, in principle, right? So I mean- here's
1: here's the thing. Uh, you can't trust Facebook. It has all that information. They're going to eventually want to monetize this. So think about it. If uh, if all that data, that facial recognition data, is available. And they decide to monetize it. For instance, they could monetize it like this. They could have a service for employers where they could look you up, to yes, see and see what you've been up to. It, see what you've been up to yep. and they don't have to tell you about that. And so then what happens is that uh, you've been very careful to only post pictures of you sitting in the library and studying, right. But your friends, Have you with the beer bong and everything else out there? That was an awesome party. That was really, really an awesome party. Now, you never posted any of those pictures, but all of a sudden, because of facial recognition, they're all tagged to your name. Your employer searches for it, and boom, it's there. The problem with Facebook, you cannot trust them. If they have information that you would rather not share with the world, it's going to be shared with the world eventually. So, my feeling, and many people feel this way, they just want to turn off facial recognition because that notification is is convenient, but it's not worth the risk. And Facebook has demonstrated themselves to be an unreliable partner. So you can, uh, you can easily turn this off. You can disable it. You just you go to the Facebook app on your mobile device. You could also do this on your, on your desktop. You want to launch the Facebook app. Tap the menu icon. It looks like the three horizontal lines stacked up on top of one another. Scroll down to settings and privacy. Then you tap settings. Scroll down to permissions. And then uh, tap facial recognition. And then you can um, turn it off. You can turn off whether you want to recognize you in photos or videos. And then you just say no. And then you're good to go. So,
0: I'm guessing things being the way they are, that face recognition is actually the default setting, and you actually have to. It's the default. They don't even ask you. Uh huh. You have to decline it on purpose. That is
1: Facebook's way. They don't even ask you. People don't even know it's around, actually. Right. Now, now I'm going to tell you uh, now, with your uh, facial recognition now disabled, you're safe. But I got to tell you, I I uninstalled the Facebook app on my iPhone completely. Because if you install the Facebook app on your iPhone, they track everything. And, and you don't know what they're doing with the data. So if I want to use Facebook on my iPhone, I go to the browser and go to the Facebook page. It's just as good. But if I look at Facebook on the, through the browser, they're not tracking me. Because I've got no tracking set up on the browser. So my advice is don't... I mean, it's convenient to have the app on there for uploading photos and all. But once you do that... They track everything. Now, Apple's trying to fix that. That's why uh, Mark Zuckerberg is so mad at Apple because it's, it, you know, it's interrupting their revenue stream. Now, I do think Facebook is really great for connecting. I mean, f- families that are spread around the world, uh, they, they like to connect and share pictures. So my advice to people that use it for family groups for sharing photos, make it a private group that you have to join. And so somebody has to be let into the private group, and then you can share all your photos. The good news is that those photos are only shared with people who are members of the group, and you won't have lurkers looking around to see what you're up to. It's a much, much better way to do that, much safer way to do that, and I think Facebook does that really well. We got an email from uh, Brian in Erie. Dear Tech Talk, I've always understood that Windows built-in Microsoft Defender antivirus is inferior, but recently heard it's actually—I've heard that it's better. No longer the case. What's your opinion? Well, when Microsoft first released uh, their Microsoft Security Essentials in the early days, it it had a well-deserved reputation as being not a very good program, a poor substitute for commercial antivirus. But to their credit, Microsoft just kept at it and kept at it. They kept improving it. Virtually every new version of the software got better. Now, now, uh, Microsoft Defender is really quite good, and it compares favorably with the commercial competitors. However, uh, you really need some uh, Microsoft Defender only scans for viruses, but there are a lot of other things out there, like uh, you got to be concerned with Uh, with phishing attempts, drive-by downloads of potentially unwanted programs. They call them PUPS, potentially unwanted programs. There's there's an
0: acronym for
1: everything. There is. is, And other forms of non-viral software. That's why I always recommend that in addition to Microsoft Defender or your uh, other antivirus program, you install malware bytes, the free version, You can download it from malwarebytes.com, and then you can run that, and it will check for other things. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can.
0: Yes, and of course, we've already mentioned cryptocurrency today. We're about to meet the co-founder of one that Doc, I think, really likes. Next on Tech Talk Radio.
2: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT Trends, Software, the Internet, and IT Careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment.
1: Charles Huskinson is founder of Cardano and co-founder of Ethereum, which are both blockchain platforms. Charles Huskinson was born November 5th, 1987 in Hawaii. He was born into a family of medical doctors, but he steered clear of a medical degree. Now, he's a very private person. He doesn't share much about his personal life. You can hardly find anything about him. He did love math. He studied analytic number theory at the Metropolitan State University of Denver and at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Now, he actually continued in school right into the Ph.D. program, but he dropped out of his Ph.D. program and joined Ron Paul's presidential campaign in 2008. I mean, that's no way to really to make good money, I don't think. I don't know if his parents really approved of that, but he did anyway. Now, he was attracted by Austrian economics. Do you know anything about Austrian no, economics? I don't, I don't know what that
0: means. No, I don't. I
1: have no idea. Okay. And libertarian thinking. Oh, it's Austrian economics and libertarian thinking. Maybe those maybe that was all linked together. Uh, he and because he was attracted to libertarian thinking, he instantly recognized. Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin white paper as a revolution. Of course, that would lead to decentralized money that would take the central bank out of it. And of course, to a libertarian, that is the holy grail. He called Bitcoin the spiritual successor to what Ron Paul was talking about. It's almost religious
0: language. It is.
1: So... (laughs) So after Ron Paul lost the presidential election, he jumped on the Bitcoin train. Now in 2013, he quit his consulting job and he began working on a project called the Bitcoin Education Project. According to Hoskinson, the limited supply makes Bitcoin like a digital form of gold. So it was a Bitcoin was a proof of principle that demonstrated a blockchain, which is a form of of distributed accounting. It's the first improvement in the accounting system since double-entry accounting was introduced by the Medicis in Florence back in the 1500s. Um, It actually allows for independent validation of transactions now, in order to pay the validators, the people that are validating the transaction, uh, Satoshi created this cryptocurrency that he would would award as a prize. And, uh, and he would give these to the validators, and they would get Bitcoin. And uh, uh, And in the beginning, Bitcoin had no value, but eventually it began to have a value. These validators, we now call miners, because they're mining for Bitcoin. Now, the way Bitcoin was set up is that there's a limited supply of Bitcoins, only 21 million, and periodically, uh, the number of bitcoins awarded for mining is cut in half, so it gets harder and harder and harder to mine Bitcoin, and that sort of pushes the value of Bitcoin up. So he just he loved that, and and uh, and so Bitcoin's only purpose, though, was just to do transactions in Bitcoin. So it was like a blockchain without a real purpose. Now he joined Hoskinson joined the Ethereum founding team of eight. Uh along with uh, Vitalik Buterin in late 2013, because he thought Ethereum had real value. The idea of the Ethereum network was instead of just having instead of it was basically, I guess you could call it second generation blockchain. Bitcoin could only trade bitcoins. That was it. Ethereum, they built a scripting language language on top of it. And you could then write smart contracts, for instance. And it was very easy for people to put applications that could sit on top of the Ethereum network, like non-fungible tokens that they're using for selling art now are basically written using the scripting language that sits on top of Ethereum. So he thought, well, this is actually pretty good. Ethereum uses the good principles of Bitcoin, but it does something useful. Now... He started working on the development with the the other eight co-founders on Ethereum. But they immediately had a disagreement. Uh, You know, Charles initially, because he he was like a pretty good manager, they made him CEO of the Ethereum Foundation. But he irritated all the lead developers. Because you see, Charles wanted a for-profit company to develop Ethereum. He wanted to raise money from venture, he wanted to raise venture capital money in return for equity. He wanted to make it a for profit operation. Now Vitalik Buterin was this altruistic guy that wanted to be nonprofit. He wanted he didn't want not want to make money out of this thing. He wanted to save the world. But but to be fair, I mean raising venture capital money is
0: also altruistic in its own way. Yeah they're both different versions of altruism,
1: really. They are. But Charles' objective was to make money himself. He was motivated yeah, by but he, profit and he was, was going to spend it wisely, as Doc. A, <laughs> as opposed to, and v- Vitalik said, I, I don't want money. Yeah. Now, of course, Vitalik made a boatload of money anyway. Yeah,
0: easy for him to say that. But isn't... he
1: just said, Well, I really don't want the money. Right. But, it, but still, yeah. he made a lot of money. Yeah. And what Vitalik wanted was to crowd sell Ethereum as as source, you know, crowd sell it, let, let just re- any people invest in it, not VCs. He wanted to accept Bitcoin as payment, he wanted to make it open source, and he wanted to make it quasi-leaderless kind of organization. It turns out that Charles and Vitalik were in a feud over how Ethereum could be managed. And it turned out that key developers in the Ethereum uh, group sided with Vitalik and they said, look, if if you leave Charles as CEO, we're going to quit. So Buterin came in, uh, Vitalik Buterin came in, and he fired uh, Charles um, from the Ethereum Foundation. And not only that, they were a little bit vengeful. They they delisted him as a co-founder, even though he had worked for a year without a salary on Ethereum. So then they said there are really only seven co-founders, and they just removed his name. That was sort of out of spite. Uh, and I uh, uh, hit... So he just went on a sabbatical for six months. He moved to Hong Kong, and uh, and he just decided to sort of lick his wounds and go forward. Well, a former Ethereum colleague, Jeremy Wood, soon approached him, and together they started a blockchain company in Hong Kong called the Input-Output Hong Kong Company, I-O-H-K. I mean, it's not a very good name. It's a cryptic name, very cryptic. Yeah, Input-Output Hong Kong. Yeah. Now could be anything. I-O-H-C, uh, uh, IOHK IOHK. Yeah, yeah. Had a major project called Cardano Blockchain, which was named after the Italian resonant, resonant uh, Renaissance, Renaissance. Renaissance yeah. mathematician mathematician, Gerolamo Cardano. Uh, now this Cardano, he was a. Um, I mean, he, I, I looked him up. He he was. Uh, he wanted to be a physician. He loved mathematics, but they would they wouldn't give him a physician's license there in Milan. So he he, he then started working for the uh, university there as a mathematician, and then later on they gave him a physician license. So he, he did both mathematicians uh, as a mathematician and as a uh, uh, and he was very interested. You know, he basically uh, pioneered some of the techniques in algebra. He caught he he was one of the first mathematicians in Europe to start using negative numbers all the time. He he developed a lot of theories around negative numbers. Now, the thing about Cardano, and that's a sort of an aside, nothing nothing to do with this is interesting. He always was short of cash. And one of his one of his passions was probability. So he wrote about probability and gambling, in particular, how to use probability and gambling to cheat. And he made a lot of money gambling and that's how he supported himself because he didn't make that much money as a physician or as a mathematician so he was a gambler a successful gambler so they named cardano after him now each blockchain has to have a cryptocurrency that they that they like ether ethereum their cryptocurrency is ether now cardano's crypto, cryptocurrency is ada ada it's named after ada lovelace <laughs> Whoa. It's not that Ada Lovelace. No, no, no,
0: no. It's not that Lovelace at all, is it? No. I think
1: think the board is actually actually channeling Jim. That's
0: that's Jim's favorite. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Something took over my hand right then. I felt it. I felt it.
1: (laughs) And, of course, Ada Lovelace was the first computer programmer. She She was the daughter of Lord Byron. And she worked for Charles Babbage, who created the, uh, the, the difference engine that was used for computing polynomial coefficients. So a lot of people really admire Ada Lovelace. So they named their, their, their token after Ada. Now, Hoskinson saw this as a chance to pursue the project in his own spirit, unhindered by, Buterin, by Vitalik Buterin and the work on Ethereum. So he created a for-profit company they did their first uh, ico which was like uh initial coin offering it's like an ipo initial public offering except that's what you do when you're in the uh, how do you find out space? about
0: those ipos are publicized in a yeah. very specific way how do you find what do you get like a it's, a, it's a, in the crypto it's yeah, in the I crypto see, an, an email on the dark web? yeah, Is that how you
1: <laughs> yeah. Or, or like if, if you're in a crypto exchange they'll there'll be like a there'll, there'll be a news flash that they'll oh, wow. they'll they'll yeah. they'll release it in the in their newsletter now uh now he mainly pitched it to Japanese investors and they raised 62 million dollars now his idea was to make a third generation network okay if I, let me explain Okay, the first generation network was Bitcoin. All it could do was trade Bitcoin. That's all it could do. It didn't do anything. It had no purpose. Now, the second generation network, he felt, was Ethereum, where they built a scripting language on it. Now, the trouble with Ethereum, it has the same basic uh, method to award Ether. They use proof of work. It's very intensive, and it doesn't scale well. You can't like you can't go from a thousand users to a million users of this thing. It just won't scale because it takes too long to validate a block. So Ethereum at its core is not scalable. It's also not written in a way that leads to good software engineering. It's like it's like a merry band of programmers putting the thing together, but there's no structure to it. Say like TCPIP, which is the protocol on the internet has layers where you've got the the hardware layer the media access layer the network layer transport it's modules that are put together as layers and it's easier to maintain software that's organized in that fashion so what um what charles wanted to do was make the third generation blockchain where you use best practices in software engineering and you make a structure that's scalable And you build on top of it, of course, the distributed network with the scripting language, and then, of course, you support smart contracts, you support distributed financing, all the things that you have all the functionality of Ethereum, but you have it built on a platform that can scale and can can become global. That was his thought. So as soon as he raises the money for this. He decided instead of just having a small group of people write the code, I'm going to get uh, the academic community working on this. So he ended up um, basically going to universities and having them work on the project, and then they would do they would publish peer-reviewed papers. Those papers would be reviewed. Developers would code the concepts that were laid out in the paper using Haskell, which is a functional programming language, which is very which is very easy to manage. And uh, and then they would build the protocol that way, one block at a time. Now, Cardano used proof of stake in the blockchain, which means instead of proof of work. So proof of stake means that if you're going to validate the blockchain, you basically put up so much money that says, look, if I make a mistake, you can take my money. You're going to put a stake in there. And so the bigger the stake, then the more reliable your validation is viewed to be. That way, there's not a lot of processing time. It's a different It's a different technique. And they developed the proof of stake um, method, which was very energy efficient. They call it the Ouroboros consensus algorithm, which actually was very successful. Now, so far, IOHK has about 50 scientists working on their code, and they produced 51 peer reviewed papers. There are 22 others that are under review. Um, This actually. May be a sustainable program because it has scalability, sustainability, and rigor. Now, because there's a for-profit company behind it, there's there's actually investors in it. there's he believes there's there's better structure than there is in ethereum, and
0: it's done in a very establishment way. We always hear these stories about people who are quasi outlaws. and here this guy is actually going to universities and getting yes. their research done. and yeah. This and really so what
1: he's trying to, he's trying to set up something like the internet Internet Engineering Task Force, which basically manages all tcp IP. He wants to have a he wants to have a, a working group that actually looks at the code. The code is open source. so he's trying to to develop best practices in software engineering and developing the code. I think it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good. Uh, Pretty good idea. Now, now the people at Ethereum they call uh, they call him uh, they call Charles a crook, a liar. I mean, there's a lot of bad blood, both ways in this thing. But he's just moving moving forward now. Now he's actually um, Cardano uh, actually has a market cap now. Ada has a market cap of 91 billion. Ethereum is at 388 billion. So he's actually making headway on this. In, because more and more people are, are are actually investing in 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 ADA and and in Cardano, so so if Cardano keeps going along in this very pragmatic, mature approach to developing decentralized global payments, uh, I think it's eventually going to be a winner. Because I, I think this is a very good approach to to building the tech building the technology. Now he actually. Wants to make the unbankable bankable. Now, what that means is you go to developing countries in Africa, where the where people just don't have access to, to banks. They, uh, you know, he he wants to give them access to banks. Now, he he's he he just went to Ethiopia. He wants to apply blockchain there. One of the problems in Ethiopia are credentials. Uh, somebody says, "Well, yeah, I graduated from this high school or this college." They can't prove it. They 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 can't they absolutely can't prove it because. The colleges don't send out the they don't send out paperwork or anything. So he wants to put credentials into a blockchain so they can be immediately validated and they can't and they can't be um, fabricated. There are a lot of counterfeit um, credentials out there, and he's trying to solve that problem. And that is a huge problem in developing countries. I mean, it's a huge problem in India. With the, I mean, you can get you can get a diploma signed by the queen of england in, in an hour i mean you know it is very hard to, to validate credentials uh, smart contracts launched in cardano they they finally launched their smart contract september of 2021 and we'll see we'll see what sort of applications that the uh, you know that that the community builds in in september of 2021 hoskinson donated 20 million dollars to carnegie mellon university to build the hoskinson center for formal mathematics now his net worth is between five and six hundred million dollars he got his initial wealth out of investing in blockchain so there you go everything you want to know about uh, charles uh, uh, hoskinson the the man who was founder of um, cardano and co-founder until they kicked him out of ethereum he's an interesting guy
0: yeah, I don't feel like this segment is complete without a little music, Doc. I oh, really- yeah. It's a crypto, man, the
2: official cryptocurrency song. I hope all my brothers and sisters around the world will sing along.
1: Look at the cryptocurrency, man, it's such a blur and see a new one every day. They got the pump and the dump, they got to make you a jump. You better watch your back. I see.
2: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment. <laughs> If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio, IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech
1: Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. We're going to look inside the Macedonia fake news complex. What can we learn from a small town in Macedonia called Vélez, Macedonia?
0: Now, that's funny that you mentioned Velis. they They're having a folk music festival there today, and I think we have a direct line to it. Let's see if we can... Yeah, there you oh, go. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, that's, that's got to be real. I think it's it sounds very authentic. That is Macedonian uh, uh, folk music. Folk music, yeah. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you, and you know, we know it's true because we don't understand a word this man is saying. We don't have a clue. <laughs> we don't have a clue.
1: But at least it's not insurrection music. <laughs> we don't know that, no,
0: this though, is, do we? <laughs> this, is, this is
1: folk music. <laughs> I hope so.
0: <laughs> so back in Vela's, what's going well, on Velas, in there?
1: Uh, Vela's is like the, uh, has more fake news sites than any other small town in the world. A small group of young entrepreneurs has learned how to milk the system or news feeds that seek engagement and pay for pay-per-click. They figured out how to put these incendiary articles up on their website, which which actually, in English, because they want to get clicks from from Americans, which make people really upset. And then Facebook has an algorithm that wants to maximize engagement. So the more an article upsets somebody, the more they deliver it to the person so they get more clicks. And, and the whistleblower in, in,
0: on the Hill the other week <laughs> was saying about that, how p- people getting angry is like the biggest maker for Facebook.
1: They make money on anger and on dissension and on division. Everything which rips up society, Facebook profits from. So there's a guy... Um, Merkel uh, Seleskowski, he, he began his websites back in the 2000s. Now, he built seven or eight websites where he had muscle cars and celebrities and super yachts on them. They're all oriented to the American reader. Now, he works five or six hours a day posting um, articles to these web pages, and he makes about $1,000 a month, which, you know, which in, uh, and he's been doing that since 2000 which in Valise is good money because the average salary in Valise is only $371. But other people found a way to make even more money. So there are a couple of brothers, Alexander and Boris Velkovsky. They both drive BMWs around town, and they're renowned for their health food website that they started. They're over there in Valise. Uh, and they make so much money on that Um on that health food website, that they're called the Healthy Brothers. Now, of course, they post all of these fake diets and stuff that doesn't make sense, and people just go crazy over it. And the more stuff that they find to post on there that's ridiculous, the more money they make. Now, healthfoods.com, it's a collection of diet and beauty advice, natural remedies, and other fantasies. Now, the website's Facebook page has 2 million followers – and more than 10 million unique visitors come to healthyfoodhouse.com every month. Now, these guys make a lot of money. They drive BMWs around town. Everybody thought they were drug dealers. But, Andrew, it turns out that fake news is the new drug. <laughs> so they're fake news dealers, and they make a boatload of money there in Valise. So Boris took their lead uh he, he boris talked about how he made money during the uh the, during the trump election so boris said okay if these guys can make he was a high school student now this is not boris's real name he didn't want his real name out there i don't know if his parents know about this or not so what he did based on the 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 healthy brothers he bought a bunch of uh, he bought a bunch of websites uh during the 2016 presidential election he uh, you know, he bought uh, you know four or five different websites, and you know, ab- and he you know from Godaddy.com, and he just started posting, posting articles on them. Now, now he he can barely speak English, but what he does, he just goes to American websites and finds articles that look interesting, and he just copies them and pastes them on his website. And he'd find something interesting, and he would just uh, like he had one website, daily interesting things. Uh, and he, and he did that really well. Well, one day, he happened to copy uh, an article about Trump. This was back in February of 2016. He copied an article about Trump, and he posted it there. So the very earliest days of the election uh, yeah.
0: campaign. I mean, there was a campaign year, but it was very early in that year. It then. was
1: very early in the year. So he posted this article about Trump, and boom, he got 800, you know, 800 likes. And people were following that. And that day, he made $150 from Google Ads. I mean, it's like it, before that time, he maybe made me make $5 a day. He made $150 that day, and he said, "Whoa, these Trump articles make money." And he, and then what he discovered that the more ridiculous the article was, the more money it would make. I mean, it didn't matter whether it was true or anything. I mean, there was one article that said that Trump was, uh, you know, at some uh, at some, uh, you know, at some rally, and somebody and somebody said something to him, and Trump went down in the audience and just slugged the guy out and knocked him out. Now, of course, that wasn't true, but that article got all these followers. It didn't matter if it was true. Fake news made more money than real news, so he said, "Hey, this looked pretty good." So he dropped out of high school and became full-time webmaster. Now he can't even write. He can barely speak English and he just would (laughs) copy paste articles. Now, between November and between August and November of 2016, Boris earned $16,000. I mean, he was in the money. He was going to the bar every night. I I, I think, I don't know if, I guess, uh, I don't know if he could drink or not, but he was still going to the bar every night because he had money and he was living high on the hog there in Belize. Uh, At one point, Belize had 100 pro-Trump websites that were giving fake news. All the people, all the young entrepreneurs today. So other
0: people jumped in on this.
1: Everybody jumped in. He he only had two websites, and he made six. So other people jumped in on it. So it becomes the town economy now. Yeah. In fact, this became so noticeable that during the election, Barack Obama even discussed Belize. And he says, "Boy, those guys are making lots of digital gold." Even Barack Obama noticed it. Of course, the whole use and the whole uh, you know use of social media and feeds, Barack Obama you know pioneered with this social media thing, and so people noticed it back when Obama had it, and then Hillary Clinton used it. So it turns out that everybody is using it because it turns out that the, the the way oh the the way that the, the system works, the more incendiary the article, the more money you make. And so people realize they can make it. Like there's this hacker X that was putting also a, a lot of incendiary articles about Trump. He had all these fake news things and this whole uh, system set up. And it, it was actually subsidized by the ads that he was making. and it And it actually created a huge source of fake news in the election. So what is happening with our social media companies, their desire to make more money on pay-per-click is destroying the national discourse, where they, they're, 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 the, the more ridiculous the discourse, the more, ang- the more anger that they generate, the more money they make. And so we're not having just normal conversations anymore. And I think we need to kind of rethink this process, and it's not really a, a matter of, um, you know, of uh, you know, of, of anti It's uh, I, I think we've got to rethink what's the proper way to go, and um, this pay per click is uh, is is actually a real problem. What what do you think we should do about that? Andrew? I, I
0: don't know because uh, government regulation often doesn't work in the way it's intended to work. Um, Free speech is an issue. People have the right to parody laws. I mean, you have the right to post, uh, obviously, like hilarious content, like the Onion newspaper that did it for mm-hmm. years. You know, so it's it's almost an. I don't know. I I would like to see
1: what people come up with. I think we need to do because this we've never had. Like it's like we have a a global living room where everybody is together. We've never had this before, and it seems like we have to find a way to manage it. I mean. I mean, here we are. Macedonia is influencing our election because of a bunch of high school kids are making money. There's something wrong with that. <laughs> that's, that's, so I don't know. I, I think we've got to rethink this. So there you go. Uh, a small town in Macedonia has become the global headquarters of fake news. So let's talk about the music of proteins. We haven't been able to get to no, this. No, we've
0: promised it for two weeks now. Yeah.
1: So you know, it turns out proteins have a very interesting structure. They're all unique. They they have got a they've got a uh, they've got a, uh, a particular sequence of molecules that are in them that define the protein, and then the protein is folded in certain ways, and the way it's folded changes its properties. So Feng Zhang, a postdoctoral research student in computational biology at uh, Rockwell University, and Wong Chen, professor of pharmacy at the National University of Singapore, developed a method to represent proteins using music. It's really interesting because you see if you fold it in a certain way, that gives you highs and lows. If you then have a certain sequence, it gives you the, the beat of the music. Now, the protein chain can be represented as a string of alphanumeric letters, very much like a string of musical notes in alphabetical notation. The protein chains can fold into wavy and curved patterns with ups and downs and turns and loops. Likewise, music consists of sound waves of higher and lower pitches with changing tempos and repeating motifs. Protein music algorithms can thus map the structure and physiochemical features of a string of amino acids into a musical features and string notes. The resulting music is complex, with notable variations, so it's it's an interesting way to analyze protein with music, and it turns out that, he, that the humans, since we can listen to music, we can hear find differences between the proteins. Now, because the algorithm is completely based on amino acid sequence and on two and on uh, the proteins that share the, the 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 sequence, each protein that we each uh, protein that we have will have a distinct sound. For example, music generated by the receptor protein that binds the hormone and neurotransmitters, oxytocin.
0: Oxytocin. That is the the hugging hormone. That's the feel-good hormone.
1: Oh, oxytocin. Yeah. Oxytocin. Yeah. So uh, let's listen to that particular music. Now I'm
0: I'm assuming this is going to sound very relaxing. Yes. Ooh. Yeah. Relatively, relatively okay.
1: Yeah. Not bad. So this binds to the hormone. It doesn't say and hug to me, but okay. It doesn't. Now on the other hand, we've got a protein, we've got music generated from a tumor antigen, P53. Now, this is a protein that prevents cancer formation and is highly chromatic. So so this tumor antigen, you know, built into our body, because we always have malformed cells. This particular one, if there's a malformed cell, it just kills it off. That's why most people you know, can avoid cancer. Uh, Now, this is a, it it has actually kind of an interesting sound, uh, toccata-like, a style that often features fast and virtuoso. Let's listen to this.
0: Yeah, it has an aggressive kind of tone to it. Yeah.
1: Who would have thought that we could make Music I'm actually impressed protein. with the pianist here.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Assuming it's a human being playing, I don't know. Yeah. So
1: what, what's interesting is that you could create this music and then a human could hear the differences in the protein, you know, really uh, dramatically without without any kind of uh And because any we per- perceive
0: music intuitively, so it gives you a sense, you know, you get a, a better, you get a, pic- a mental picture of it, I think, when That's you listen right. to it. That's
1: right. Yeah. Actually, that, that could be soothing. We We could make a playlist of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, of protein music. I think I've just got enough time to get to the educator version of Office 365.
0: Yeah, l- definitely. Let's co- cover that today because yeah. it's a deal for people. So
1: students and teachers can use Microsoft Office 365 for free thanks to a program called Office 365 Education. If you meet the requirements, you can download the Office 365 on your PC, Mac, or mobile device without charge. There are no complicated things to jump through to qualify. All you need is a verifiable email address from your school, like a .edu. And if it's a valid school email address, you'll qualify. You'll get the latest version of Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and OneNote for PC or Mac. You'll get Office Online for in-browser editing, collaboration, and co-authoring. You'll get Microsoft Teams, and you'll get a gigabyte of free OneDrive storage. So you simply go to the download site for Office in Education. What you want to do, you can just go to Microsoft uh, 365 for Educators, and that will actually help you download. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get it back to you as soon as we can. And go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out the programs. And when you check out those programs and then call Stratford University, tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio.
0: Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.